Alright, as I said in my prayer, we are in uh, the Gospel of Luke this evening, so in the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. The uh, I, I believe Tyson last week shared with you a little bit about the synoptic gospels and uh, those types of things. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels because there's a lot of overlap in them. Uh, John, of course, is kind of a unique gospel because he was probably closer to Jesus than these other uh, disciples. But uh, we'll just start tonight uh, by me asking you a question. What do you know about Luke? Anyone know anything about Luke? He was a physician. He was a physician? Okay. Paul's secretary, I suppose we could say, he, uh, he did the right, he did Paul right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To a dictation. Yeah. yeah. He was a companion of Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. <laughs> you know how your mind wanders, and I say, what if Luke had gone with the other way? <laughs> Would we have been reading more? Yeah. About somebody else besides Paul. Besides Paul, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you may know or you may not know, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so in uh, actually the Gospel of Luke, it doesn't say, it doesn't actually say Luke is the author, but we know in Luke he says he's writing to Theophilus, and that's the same person that he's writing to in Acts. And so some people think that he wrote Luke, and Acts is kind of like, uh, uh, he was writing maybe a trilogy, and Acts was the second book in the trilogy. And so, because he, he of course, in Luke, he's in the Gospel of Luke, he's telling us everything that Jesus did while he walked here on the earth. And then when we get to Acts, he actually says, uh, I'm going to continue to share with you what Jesus is continuing to do uh, through the church. And the great thing about the book of Acts is that it continues to be written. <laughs> uh, because Acts was written as the church age was beginning and uh, the book of Acts comes to an end, uh, but yet the church age still has continued. And so many people say that book of Acts as we live today is still continued uh, to be written. And of course the church has spread uh, more across the entire globe as opposed to those days in Luke. So let's jump into it. And the first couple here are just ways of review. And I know we looked at Matthew. Was that way back uh, before Christmas, I believe? And then uh, looked at Mark maybe two or three weeks ago. Uh, and so this may be... Uh, a little bit of a review for you, but Matthew, uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the Messiah of God. Okay, the Messiah of God. All right. And Messiah, M-E-S-S-I-A-H. A-H, yep. And so in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he is trying to demonstrate and to convince the Jews that Jesus is this Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. So it's written to the Jews. Okay. Um, and of course, we saw this in Matthew. He uses... He, quotes a lot of prophecy. He uh, shares how Jesus fulfills all those prophecies. In Mark, we see that Jesus is the servant of God. 
and Mark, we, as we looked at that, we saw that he doesn't share quite as, I think there's only one prophecy in the whole gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark's gospel is really all about action. He did this, and then he did this, and he did this. Immediately he went here, immediately he went there. And it was written to the Romans. So he was trying to show the Romans that Jesus is this uh, servant of God. And then we come to the Gospel of Luke, and as I've already alluded to, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And that's a term that's used here in Luke. Uh, first found in uh, the Ezekiel in which he refers to the Son of Man. And so we see that here in Luke. And Luke is writing primarily to Greek, a Greek uh, audience, so the Greeks. Uh, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to show the Greeks because um, typically Greek culture, they idolized man. Okay? And so what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to show the Greeks that Jesus is this, he's the ideal man. Okay. Um, I don't know if uh, they had uh, those romance novels, but you can imagine that, you know, now today we see the ideal man is that guy who has the big muscles and the long flowing hair and all that. Okay. Uh, that's probably not what Luke is trying to portray to them. But in any case, he's trying to portray to these Greeks who idolize man that Jesus is the ideal man. Okay, and he came, and, and as you see, as we look in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see that he shows a lot of Jesus' humanity side. Whereas Matthew, of course, is trying to show them that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. And in, in Matthew's Gospel, he's trying to show, really bring about Jesus' divinity. Here in Luke, he, he really shows a lot of Jesus' humanity. Okay, so some of the general characteristics of Luke is this, is that Luke is the only Gentile to write a New Testament book. All the others are uh, Hebrews. They were uh, Jews who came to faith in Christ and God used them to write the New Testament. Luke is the only one outside of the Jewish culture to write a book in the New Testament. And it's interesting that, of course, Luke is writing to people who are not Jews. Okay, so it, it was good that God used him uh, to do this. And as we talked a couple weeks ago when we first started looking at the Gospels, and I said, you know, why was there four different Gospel authors? Why did they each write uh, and compile information about Jesus? Is that we, through each of them, we get a much broader picture of Jesus. For instance, um, Tyson, as being in the class, was talking about uh, the boy that got bit by a dog. Okay, And I drove by, I saw the ambulance and everything. He saw it actually happen. He saw some different things than I would have seen when I drove by. And so Luke, uh, of course, he's getting his information from Paul and some other people. And so the things that they see is different from the things that Matthew witnessed. And, and, and John, of course, was one who was very close to Jesus, so he's going to give us some even different insights than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke can offer to us. Uh, so, 
Luke is that Gentile that wrote, that wrote a New Testament book. Some distinctives here. So these are some things that we only see in Luke's gospel. Now, I did say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as those synoptic gospels because there is a lot of overlap. But, uh, and these are only a few. There are many more than this, but these are just some highlights that I picked out. Uh, the first one is this, is that in Luke's gospel is the only place where we see the shepherds which is a big part of the Christmas story, right? You cannot have a Christmas story, you cannot have a kid's Christmas pageant without getting those kids dressed up as little sheep and shepherds and walking down to the manger scene. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, that's where we see the angel come and announce to the shepherds that uh, the Messiah has been born, and they travel and they find him, just as the angel said, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And so Luke is the only one that gives us that. If you go over to the right there, uh, the, the temple visit, uh, temple visit. So you remember this, when Jesus was uh, about 12 years old, his family had gone to Jerusalem, they were there for the festival, they began traveling home, and they realize that, that Jesus is not with them. So they run back to the city, and they look all over the place for Jesus, and he comes to the temple, and the Bible says, uh, actually, let's, let's just turn there. If you turn over to Luke chapter 2, and in verse 46. So the account actually begins in verse 41, but we're going to pick it up in verse 46. And it came about that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, in verse 46, it says that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, we read this from a, perspective, a Western perspective in 2018. If you walk into a classroom, who do you see sitting? The students, right? And the teacher is the one who's standing up and asked, and uh, the teacher is the one who is giving information, and the students raise their hands, and the students ask questions. That is not what happens here in Luke chapter 2. In Jesus' day, it was the teacher who sat, and the students stood around the teacher, and the teacher is the one who asked the questions to get the students to think. So think about this for a second. Here's Jesus, 12 years old, sitting, teaching these religious leaders. And his parents come in after this, and they say here in verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Okay? Now, Luke is the only writer of the Gospels who gives us that information. 
All the other gospel writers, of course, uh, they may mention his birth, they may mention his baptism, uh, but we know nothing. This is the only thing we know about Jesus' childhood, is what we really see right here, and Luke is the only one who gives us that. Over in uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, uh, this is where we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we all know that story. Most people, uh, here, you want to look at, you want to look at the answers? So you can get yours filled in. The Good Samaritan. Even those people that are asked sometimes, but I know Jay Leno is retired, but remember when Jay Leno used to go on the street and he'd ask people Bible questions, really simple Bible questions like how many commandments are there and people wouldn't know it. Uh, most people even know, most people who don't even attend church know the story of the Good Samaritan where a man falls to robbers, he's alongside the road, religious leaders walk by, they don't help him, and this Samaritan walks down, he finds him, uh, takes him, takes care of him. Again, that is an, that's an account that's only found in Luke. And again, think about this. Luke is writing to portray Jesus as the Son of Man, the ideal man. Okay, And if you read through here, and some of these things that we've been talking about thus far, Luke always seems to draw out these stories of the outcasts. Okay? Uh, the shepherds, they were the outcasts. Uh, the Good Samaritan, he's the outcast. Uh, brings me to the next one in Luke chapter 15 and verses 11 through 24 is the story of the prodigal son. He was an outcast. And we all know that story too, where uh, the son, the younger son, says, You know, I've had enough of this. I want to go and live on my own. Tells his dad, Give me what's mine. His dad gives it to him. He goes, he lives, spends all of his money, finds himself eating with the pigs, and then <clears throat> um, comes back home. His father welcomes him with open arms. Okay, then if you jump over to Luke chapter 22, I'm going to turn there. Verse 44, Luke is the only one that tells us this happens. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now you would expect Luke to pick up on this because Luke is a physician. So this is, uh, I, I just wrote here, the bloody sweat. The bloody sweat. So that is Luke... 2244. I feel bad for Tiffany. This is the first time you've been here, and everybody else is kind of used to how I do this. So, uh, the bloody sweat, Luke 2244. So, Luke, of course, is a physician, and there is actually a medical term for what this is here. It's called hematidrosis. And it actually comes from two Greek words hema, which means blood and drosis, which means water. So blood, water is what's happening here. And there, there are uh, still currently in the world today accounts of people who are under such strain of life that their blood pressure goes so high that the capillaries in their head actually burst. And when they sweat, blood comes out with their sweat, with their perspiration, hematidrosis. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. 
Of course, we would expect Luke to write this detail, right? Because he's a physician. He would want to pick up on things like this. And so he tells us here that he, he, his sweat was as if it were great drops of blood. Okay, And then the final one in uh, Luke 23, 39-43, that is the account of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross. Now, we do know from other accounts that he was crucified with other individuals. But it's in Luke's account that we actually hear the interaction between Jesus and this thief on the cross. I'm going to just read it here, beginning in verse 39 of chapter 23. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other said and rebuked him, but the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed just we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, uh, there are uh, folks that don't believe in uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We, there are some people who believe in uh, uh, purgatory. And what they would say here is, Jesus isn't saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And they would say that there was no punctuation in the original language. And what Jesus was saying is, he's saying, today I'm telling you that one day you will be with me in paradise. Okay, uh, which is contrary because when we go to other texts, when the Bible says tells us in First Corinthians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What Jesus is telling him, your faith has redeemed you, and I'm telling you today, when you die, you will be with me in paradise. So again, those are just six accounts that uh, are. <coughs> Uh, unique to Luke's gospel. There are many others, like I said, but those are some of the big ones. Luke uses some poetry as well. And uh, really just here at the birth of Jesus, we see, first of all, the Song of Mary, uh, oftentimes called the Magnificent. And she is declaring praise to God. Uh, after he's born, he's taken to the temple. And there we see uh, the song of Zacharias. And uh, Pastor Jeremy preached on uh, these songs there at Christmas time. And then in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, is the song of the angels. Song of what? The angels. Okay, everybody get all those? Under poetry, the song of Mary, the song of Zacharias, the song of the angels. Okay. And then, finally, we have that blank, next blank under there is prayer. More than any other gospel writer, um, do you need the answers? No, Are you okay? what was the last one under poetry? Poetry, the Song of Mary, the Song of Zacharias, and the Song of the Angels. Uh, 
the kids in my class too, they always tell me I don't leave them enough blank to write everything in there. Because sometimes I have like five words they've got to put in a blank about that long. <laughs> I just tell them write smaller. Um, so, yeah, in Luke's gospel, we see more of the prayers of Jesus than any other gospel. Now, again, because of what I have reinforced to you time and time again already in this class about Luke, why do you think he writes about all those prayers? Luke is emphasizing what about Jesus? His humanity. humanity. And I hope that you all, as mere mortals, are spending a lot of time in prayer. <laughs> because you and I cannot survive this life outside of prayer. Uh, Kova, my secretary, we were just talking Friday. And we were talking about all these things that have just occurred here recently. And uh, she said something that Beth and I have talked about oftentimes. I'm sure you have talked about it with people too. Like Those people who are not believers... How do they make it through life when big things like this happen, when there's death, when there's disease, when there's trials and tribulations and hardships? Uh, those people who don't, have, don't know Jesus, how do they make it through life? And then I, I said to her, I said, I don't understand how people who are believers, but you know, if statistics are right, most of us as believers are not praying as much as we should. How are those people who, don't find, who are not praying on a regular basis, how do they even make it through life? Okay, And so here in Luke's gospel, more than any other gospel writer, he's showing us that Jesus was a man of prayer. And again, he's showing him as this ideal man. And if we're going to follow in his footsteps, then we too should be people of prayer and should find ourselves in prayer more often than we probably currently do in our lives. All right. Now, jumping down, the outline of Luke. So go back to Luke chapter 1. We're going to walk through the gospel of Luke in about 15 minutes. <laughs> you will be a world scholar in the book of Luke. <laughs> okay. Luke chapter 1. So chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, we see the preparation of the Son of Man. The preparation of the Son of Man. So God is preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. And even in that preparation, it's broken into uh, five different sections. And the first one is birth. So, of course, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 38, talks about the impending and subsequent actual birth of John the Baptist as well as Jesus. Now you know John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus and uh, Mary goes to see um, Elizabeth and when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice the Bible says that the baby inside of her leapt with uh, joy and so even then you see that God was preparing uh, John the Baptist to be the forerunner and then of course uh, John the Baptist is born then Jesus is born in Bethlehem okay 
And because he was of the house and lineage of David, he had to go to the city of David uh, for his birth to be happened. And then, of course, he's presented at the temple. So, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 38 is the birth. We're, Tyson, we're down at the bottom there, the outline of Luke. Roman numeral 1 is the preparation of the Son of Man. Um, letter A is birth. And then letter B is boyhood. So this is a very, Luke gives us a very just quick glimpse at one point in the life of the boy Jesus. And this is where that uh, account, when he goes back to the temple at 12 years of age, and uh, I shared with you how he was there teaching the religious leaders. And then it concludes, this section concludes in uh, chapter 2, verse 52, if you turn over there and look. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay? So Luke gives us insight that Jesus growing up, nothing really, his, his growth did not happen miraculously. It wasn't that he was a baby and then next thing you know, he's a 30-year-old man. Okay? But that he continued in, to increase in wisdom uh, okay, and stature, so he's getting bigger, and in favor with God and men. All right, so we see that, that boyhood of Jesus. Uh, letter C is the baptism. John the Baptist is out. I, said, I, I told a joke one time. What does John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? The natural answer is honey. They both like honey. But my answer, which I think is better, is they both have the same middle name. John the Baptist, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that came up because uh, we were talking in my class about uh, uh, names for God in the, in the New Testament. And I was sharing them. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And I said, he is Jesus the Christ. He's, Jesus isn't his first name and Christ is his last name. He's Jesus the Christ. And uh, of course, I didn't want to diminish the name of Jesus. So I used John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh. They both have the same middle name. Um, but anyways, John the Baptist is out there. He's wearing camel's hair. He's just this, this uh, guy. He's out there. He's preaching repentance. People are coming to him from all over the countryside, and they're being baptized. Uh, and then Jesus comes, and he is baptized with him, uh, or by him. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, now came about, when all the people were baptized, that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying... Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. In those few verses right there, you see a great picture of the Trinity. God the Son is being baptized. God the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. God the Father is speaking from heaven. So you can see there... It's not modalism where, you know, one moment he's God the Father, the next moment he's God the Son, the next moment he's God the Holy Spirit, because they're, they're all three functioning differently at the same time. The Son is being baptized, the Spirit is descending, and the Father is speaking. So we see there a great picture of the, the triunity of God. All right, so we move on from there, and letter D is uh, beginning, just because I want to keep it alliterated, uh, but in... Starting there in verse 23, 
through the rest of the chapter, Luke gives us that genealogy of Jesus. And he actually starts with Jesus and works all the way back to Adam. And of course, you've all heard, you know, as you read through that, there's some uh, colorful characters in the lineage of Jesus that God has used in uh, some mighty ways. And uh, again, I, I think I said this last time we were meeting, that failure is never final. Okay, That God... Even, you know, you can be a knucklehead sometimes, but the grace of God is that He can, he can still use you if you're willing to repent and uh, come clean with Him. Okay? So the beginnings. And then again, continuing, I'm just, this is not, uh, I, I, thought, I thought it fit, but just to keep with the alliteration, I called it bribery. Okay, this is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I called it bribery because Satan is, you know, he's trying to give him all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down to him. Uh, I know it's not the right term there, but, you know, I had to stick with the, the B words. So, uh, bribery. And this is where Jesus gives us those quotes in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And of course, what Jesus is doing there, and as I tell all the students in my class, this is why you need to memorize scripture. <laughs> okay, I will hide your, your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Uh, the greatest defense against the temptations that you will face in life is to memorize Scripture. And, of course, I have people tell me all the time, students in my class, every Friday when I'm giving them a verse quiz, I can't memorize stuff. And I said, that's baloney, because I know there are many kids your age before the invention of cell phone who remembered all their friends' phone numbers. Okay? <laughs> and I said, I'm sure you got song lyrics tucked away in your head. You got all kinds of things stashed in there. Uh, everybody can memorize um, scripture. So anyways, um, I'll get off that soapbox. Of course, the bulk of Luke's gospel is the ministry of the Son of Man. So that goes from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 19, verse 27. And Bible scholars have really broke this down into two parts. And the first part, letter A, is Galilee. That's his ministry that he has in Galilee. Now you all remember my uh, great drawing of the nation of Israel, right? So up here you got the Sea of Galilee, then you got the Jordan River, and then you got the Dead Sea, and then um, Israel was divided into three parts. I can never spell Galilee right, that's not right. It's one L, right? Anyways. Alright, Samaria and Judea. Okay, the nation of Israel. So, Galilee is, of course, where Jesus was originally from. That's where his parents were from. They went to Judea, and he was born in Bethlehem. But after his birth, his family moved back to Galilee. 
And that's where uh, he spends the first part, in, in Luke's gospel, that's where he spends the first part of his ministry, uh, of course, calling his disciples and things like that. And then we come to chapter 9, verse 51. And from there until uh, chapter 19, it is his Judean ministry. So he's in Galilee, and then he's in Judea. And of course, a lot of that centers around the city of Jerusalem itself. Two words, Galilee and Pharaoh. I can never get Pharaoh spelled right either. <laughs> they always give me trouble. Every time I write it, my computer says spell check. And, uh. All right. Then the third part of the book, chapter 20 to chapter 23, is uh, the suffering of the Son of Man. begins in chapter 20. He's not really there under arrest quite yet, but he's being tested by the religious leaders. Uh, he's asked about should they pay taxes to Caesar. And let me just read, if you turn to chapter 20, verse 19, just because I like this account and uh, um, I want to explain something to you here. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. See, that, that happened long before today's culture, when there's people who are just waiting for somebody to say the wrong thing. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he directed their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and marveling at his answer, they became silent. So they said to him, Should we pay taxes or not? Which is a good question. Well, everybody's not too worried about taxes now, because big tax cut, right? Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um, anyways, not to get, we'll get off politics right now. Okay. Um, so they said, should we pay taxes or not? And he says, well, well, give me a coin. And he asked for a coin. He holds it up and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, then, okay, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. I want you to think about that for a second. He says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Well, give Caesar where his image is. Give to God where his image is. Where is the image of God stamped? On each and every one of us. We were created in the image of God. I don't know if, this, uh, if I'm reading way between the lines here, making too much of this, but Jesus is saying, well, you give to Caesar whatever he asks. But God is asking for the entirety of who you are. God wants your heart, your mind, your life, everything. Give to Caesars where Caesars 
images, give to God where God's image is. And that is everything that I am. And of course, they were stunned and they were silent and they could not answer him after that. Okay, so then we go on and of course he's arrested, he's tried, he is crucified, and he dies. And then in chapter 24, the last chapter, section 4, the victory of the Son of Man. And of course, Luke gives us this insight on these disciples that they were on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus shows up and uh, the, the Bible says in verse 16, their eyes were prevented from recognizing. Because some people say, well, how could they not recognize Jesus? God did something supernatural there because the Bible tells us they were prevented from recognizing him. And so he shares with them, they get there, and, they, and when they do realize it's Jesus, they look at each other and say, were our hearts not burning within us when he was sharing with us the word? And so uh, what better person to share with you uh, Jesus than Jesus? You know, he said that he started uh, with all of the things in the Old Testament and shared with them about how the Messiah had to come and suffer these things. And uh, of course, then they were startled and they were amazed and he's no longer with them and goes on and um, there's other appearances there in the Gospels okay now in Matthew Mark and John they all give us the Great Commission Luke ends his gospel ends without giving the Great Commission that's why we have to go to the second act of Luke's writings in Acts well, I didn't mean that pun, but you know, it works. Uh, and it's in Acts, Acts 1.8, where he gives us basically the Great Commission. You be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, So again, a brief outline of Luke. Let's turn back to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We're going to look at one verse, the marks of a disciple. Real quick. Yes. I just did some real late research, but you, you made that comment about um, the, the story of the denarius mm -hmm. and the image on it, and I looked up the word that they use for image, and it's the same word, they use the same word in Greek that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that they use in Septuagint um, for the image in Genesis, in Genesis image 1. of God. So it's the same word. Okay. Yeah. So that would, be, okay. that would be good. Thank you for validating my comments. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't go into that much research about it, but, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, Luke 9.23. And you probably all know this verse. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And we talked about that actually uh, from Mark's gospel last time. And I was trying to get the finders, keepers, losers, weepers, things right. But anyways. Uh, so in this one verse, uh, five marks of a disciple. Number one, discipleship is a matter of desire. If anyone wishes, 
Okay, if anyone desires, if anybody wants to come after me. Okay, now our problem is this, is that oftentimes we <coughs> desire other things more than we desire Jesus. And uh, I raise my hand just as high at that statement as anyone else. Um, the desires of this world so easily creep in on us. And uh, <coughs> I find myself oftentimes just asking the question, is Jesus enough? If I lost everything else, uh, I would say fame, but I, I, was tell, I was tell people I'm pretty famous, just nobody knows it yet. Uh, <laughs> fame, fortune, health, family. If, if you lost everything, is Jesus enough? And it's always scary to ask that question because sometimes Jesus says, well, let's find out. <laughs> you know, um, but discipleship is a matter of desire. Am I going to desire Jesus more than I desire anything else in this life? Discipleship number two is a matter of direction. If anyone wishes to come after me. So I have got to make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. To, of course, if my desire is in the right place, I'm going to go in the right direction. Um, we were driving home last weekend, and it was dark, and we were on I-95, and I was going <coughs> a little over the speed limit. Uh, yeah, I, 70, I usually go six miles over, so I was going about 76 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, I saw something out of the corner of my eye coming across the road, and I, I didn't have time to swerve, I didn't have time to stop, and it was two raccoons. They were probably, each one was about that big. And all of a sudden, I just heard, boom, 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 boom. And I ran over them, and Beth says, what was that? And I said, it was two raccoons. And she thought it was like a couple small dogs. That's how big they were. And uh, Holden's in the back saying, did you run over them? I said, I, there was nothing I could do. And I said to him, I said, the problem is they didn't repent. <laughs> okay? Because repentance means I stop going in the direction I'm going. I'm going to turn around and go back in the right direction. And so I told him, I said, not my fault. They should have repented. And, uh, and so direction is very important in our life. Because if we end up going the wrong direction, we're going to get run over. <laughs> All right. So he goes on. Desire, direction. Number three is discipleship is a matter of denial. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. There's a difference between self-denial and denying self. Let me explain it. Self-denial says, I'm not going to have that bowl of ice cream tonight because I'm trying to lose weight. I'm gonna, that's that's self-denial. Denying self says, I am not important. Uh, others are more important than myself. That's why... Uh, uh, you know, the command there is to esteem one another as more important than myself. Um, even to the point in which I no longer live for my dreams. I no longer live for my wants. I no longer live for my wishes because now they're replaced with the desires and the wants and the wishes of Jesus. And I deny myself. And 
uh, and Pastor Hightower, maybe you've heard this before, but I, people have said often for, for pastors, if you can see yourself doing anything else, go do that and not be a pastor. And somebody said that to me one time, and I said, how is that biblical? Because there's a whole lot of things I could probably see myself doing. But if God has called me to this, then that means I've got to deny myself in those areas, even though I could see myself doing those things. You know what I mean? And I think that's what the Christian life is, being a disciple, that I deny myself. I deny what I want and replace with what Jesus wants. So, desire, direction, denial. Number four, discipleship is a matter of death. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's a symbol, it's a portrait of death, and that's why Paul says, I die daily. And again, I think these are all sequential steps. When I have the right desire, I'm going to go in the right direction. When I'm going in the right direction, it becomes easy for me to deny myself. When I deny myself, it's easy for me to die to self. And then number five, uh, discipleship is a matter of dependability. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him, take up, let him deny himself and take up his cross, how often? Daily. Day in, day out. Now, you hear some people say, you know, my neighbor is the cross that I'm called to bear. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is talking about, okay? Or my husband or my wife. <laughs> I, I don't know if my facial reaction shows it sometimes, but I have people that come to me sometimes and, like, all they do is complain about their spouse. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how ridiculous do you sound that you're married to this person and you're just complaining about them uh, just they can't do anything right and it just it to me it just sounds ridiculous but anyways we are way off track there anyways um take up his cross daily day after day after day after day after day after day because the moment i stop doing it it's so easy to go the other way day after day after day after day uh, and maybe you can uh chime in on this but a world famous pianist said one time he said if I don't practice for a month, the audience will know it. If I don't practice for a week, my orchestra will know it. If I don't practice for a day, I'll know it. <laughs> okay? Uh, you know, I could probably get away not following Jesus every day, and it might take a while for people around me to notice that. It'll be a lot less time for the people closest to me to notice it. But... The first day, Jesus knows it. Okay, so dependability. So desire, direction, denial, death, dependability. Discipleship, finally, number six, is a matter of devotion. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Be devoted wholeheartedly to Jesus. Ed Sullivan. I've never saw the Ed Sullivan show. Maybe some elder statesmen have seen the Ed Sullivan show. But there's a story that Ed Sullivan had a bodybuilder on a show one time, and he came out and he flexed and showed all his muscles. And Ed Sullivan said, that's nice, but what are all those muscles for? And all the guy did, he just flexed again. And he said, well, that's, that's good, but 
what's the purpose of all those muscles? And he just flexed again. That's all he could do. Okay. Um, the purpose for us as believers is to be disciples, not just simply to, to go through this life and accumulate uh, whatever this world has to offer, but the purpose of a disciple is to lay aside all those things and be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And maybe you have heard the statement before. Um, one old lady in a church one time said this to me, and uh, I kind of called her out on it. But she said, well, you can be so heavenly-minded, you know earthly good. And, of course, I was young at the time, and I looked at her and I said, I have never met anyone like that before in my life. And now that I'm a little older, uh, I still have not met anybody who was so heavenly-minded they were no earthly good. I've met a whole lot of people that are so earthly good, or so earthly-minded they're no heavenly good. <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't think... Because the purpose of following Jesus is ultimately to make a difference in the world around us. And he has planted us where he has planted us for a purpose and for a reason, and that is to make his name great. So.